happy and glorious 2019. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 110. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now your host, Kristen Trumpy. Hello, my lovely listeners. I hope you had very happy holidays. And if they were not happy, I hope that you have recovered by now uh, from whatever happened. And I hope that you started this new year well and that you already know a couple of things that you are looking forward to in 2019. Now, you will hear an interview which may be the most controversial um, that I've done so far, and I was excited by it. I was laughing about it uh, during and after the interview, but I can't imagine that some people with more, um, how should I put this, delicate constitutions might might, just might be slightly offended with some of the things that are brought up and some of the things that people say. And I would encourage you to just give it a try anyway, because very often the things that we have strong reactions to are somewhat relevant for us. Alrighty, so today we're talking to Simone and Malcolm Collins. Welcome. Can you introduce yourself, both of you, please? Thank you. I'm Malcolm Collins. I'm Simone Collins, and we run an international travel business. Malcolm is a former neuroscientist who then went into the startup world and then venture capital, and then we found our way into basically buying small promising companies and fixing them up, which led us to this travel business. And I do just about the same thing minus neuroscience. But our recreation is writing books on uh, the subject uh, or, or trying to write books that create sort of a holistic and unique philosophy of uh, pragmatism as an approach to psychology. Right. So basically you have like your little interdisciplinary team going on. Um, just in like several lives and like packed into each of your lives. So that's cool. <laughs> um, all right. So let's, yeah, let's start with why did you zero in on pragmatism? Because that's not exactly a common self-help topic. Well, we see it as a corruption of what is mainstream positive psychology today, which we think to some extent is really corrupted by uh, the political and, um, you know, to some extent, spiritual ideologies of the people who are at the top of the academic bureaucracies within the positive psychology movement. Um, and specifically what it is, is that they have been moving very much towards a, let's look at how we can utilize psychology to optimize for uh, happiness. And when we say happiness, we don't mean, you know, surface level happiness. I mean, they're often looking for sort of a deeper, more fulfillment sort of happiness, but they are still at the end of the day, optimizing for an emotion. Um, whereas the pragmatist school of thought would say that you choose what you want to optimize for, and it shouldn't be that easy of a choice. And while one option is optimizing for positive emotions, other options could be anything from optimizing for offspring to uh, productivity to any of the other things a person could dedicate their life to. Uh, and so what we do is we take the science around psychology in the same way that positive psychology took the science around psychology and said, well, here's how we can utilize all of this stuff to optimize for sort of a positive emotional output. And we say, how can you utilize all of this stuff to optimize for many other types of outputs other than positive emotions, but also including positive emotions? Right. So I didn't catch the first one that you said. So you said you can optimize for, do you remember what that first one was? Because I really didn't catch that. I'm not well, sure the listeners can hear. Thing, you can, so basically the gist is with positive psychology, you're optimizing for happiness or if someone's being a little bit more... I don't know, hippy-dippy, I'd say, is transcendence or some kind of overall mastery of your life in the world. But still an emotion. Yes, and what we're saying here is, okay, well, let's just, let's just take out the whole end state, let people choose that for themselves after thinking through it, 
and instead just have an equation for optimizing whatever it is you decide matters. That could be optimizing puppies, optimizing happiness, optimizing the number of kids you have, all those things. Optimizing productivity, optimizing pleasing God, you know, if you're in a religious context but you still believe in the science of psychology. Yes. All right, so did I just live by a completely incorrect definition of what pragmatism is? Or is pragmatism not related to being pragmatic? I'm a bit confused. How do you define pragmatism? So we we see pragmatism as basically a practical, straightforward approach to achieving what you expect to or what you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I mean, so let's define this a little more simply. It's about setting a goal, looking at the evidence available to you, and using that evidence to reach said goal. Um, and where positive psychology is not pragmatic, and that it it does not give people the option to set their own goals. It tells them what their goal should be at the end of their journey, which is emotional output. Huh. I mean, I think, I think, well, well, I'm not sure. Like where, where did you get this information from? Like based on what did you get this information from? Because the, I mean, a lot of times we talked about the fact that it's just really, optimize like it's about optimal living so that can be all kinds of things right so that could theoretically also be optimal living for some person for one person might be you know to become an endurance runner and that's that comes with a lot of negative emotions so well so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what what are you what are you referring to one thing we love about your podcast is that you do really deviate from the mainstream positive psychology trend But even if you look at something like becoming an endurance runner, right? One of the things we really try to focus on is why are you choosing these specific things as your goal? Why is being an endurance runner intrinsically meaningful to you? Why do you think that is worth expending the one life you have on without trying to guide you towards a specific answer? It's just so often people say, I guess this is easy, or I sort of feel like this is what I'm supposed to do, but they don't really logically think through, why have I been attracted to this particular path in life, and what is the logical framework behind choosing that path? I mean, let's get into it, because if I can say one thing that has confused me more than anything else in psychology, it's preferences. And I I don't know, like, I mean, my, my take, but I would love for you to prove me wrong tonight. Um, tonight here, it's tonight for you. It's probably the middle of the day. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so because for me preferences, it seems like, you know, people get really hung up. Let me get into kind of what I'm setting it up kind of in the way, and then please come back. Um, people kind of get really hung up or guilty about, you know, like, Oh, why do I like this? Why do I like that in some areas, but not in others? All right. So, so one thing that, that baffles me is that, well, it seems like preferences, we confabulate a lot. You know, like, I'm not really convinced we even know anything about why we like something or not, unless it's really linked to a particularly beautiful memory or something. So how, what would you respond to that? Yes. Oh, I would respond that this is the topic I have thought a great deal about. Um, And I think that preferences can be broken down into three categories. And that's one thing I love about your show is that you're always breaking things down into categories. Um, So one type of preference is a self-image fulfilling preference. Something about the, the environment you were socialized in gave you sort of different paths you believed you could take in life, different ways you believed you could see yourself. And a lot of what we do in life is about fulfilling this self-image of ourselves we have built. Um, And that is one category of of preferences. Uh, The second category of preferences that you see people strongly gravitate towards, uh, I would say are sort of intrinsic or biological, so non-socialized preferences. Um, And often these preferences are... uh, change with age and it really trips people up because they assume when they have a preference when they are younger that that preference will stay throughout their entire life but as you know you know you can look at a puppy's play behavior right 
And you know that when the puppy grows into a dog, it no longer has that play behavior anymore. Yet many people keep coming back to these preferences, looking for fulfillment that gave them fulfillment earlier in life, but they've moved to a different stage. Um, and so those I would consider sort of biologically, biological preferences. The first is socialized preferences. And then the final category would be logical preferences. And these are things that are your preferences because you have logically sought through them and believe that in some way they have intrinsic value, that they have some sort of value beyond the way you were socialized and beyond sort of biological impulses telling you to do something like run long distances. Um, and I would, I would break all preferences down into one of those three categories. Would you agree, Simone? Or? Yeah. And you can see this happen with, with the time based preferences Malcolm discussed. It's even as simple as, you know, how your tastes change uh, as you grow up. First, you're really sensitive to bitter and you're really keen on sweet and then suddenly you discover that coffee's amazing or suddenly you like spicy food. And and people don't realize that this also happens with the things that make them happy. That, you know, maybe soccer makes you happy, you know, for a certain period of, in your, of your life, but then it may not be the same. But but that's if you, you know, you're, you're the type of person who allows yourself to go after what makes you happy. And, and both of the two ca first categories of preferences are driven by what gives you happiness because you get happiness by fulfilling a certain self-image of yourself. You know, you see yourself as like a strong, independent person. So you do things, you have preferences that um, meet that standard that you created because of how you were socialized. Um, right. So, for example, I grew up to be a wholesome countryman in Texas. And so, therefore, I want things like a pickup truck. I enjoy things like beer because that's what like that kind of person wants. You know, I go to church every Sunday. I work hard on the farm every day, and I like to have a good party. Well, they're socialized to believe. That yeah, that's and so when they when they do those things, they feel happiness because they are satisfying this vision of themselves. So that's that other type of happiness that Malcolm's referring to. Cool. So wow, I <laughs> nice. Um, this reminded me of you know the whole discussion, and I'm not sure if that was your you know, cup of neuroscience, Malcolm, please tell me if it wasn't, but, um, you know, these experiments where it was basically shown that people are in, in compelled to do things before they want to do things. And, and some of the <laughs> hardcore people say like, well, basically you have no free will. So okay. So you're specifically talking about fMRI studies where based on the data in the fMRI, you can tell what decision someone has made before it has entered their cognitive mind that they've made that particular decision. But that doesn't necessarily mean they don't have free will, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they were compelled to do it. What it means is before it became an active thought was in their conscious mind, their unconscious mind had made a decision in relation to the particular choice they were given. I can also say there was some replication errors with those studies. Yes, yeah, so Simone's obsessed with studies. So there were replication errors with those studies. So those studies became famous. They don't imply what a lot of people take them to imply, and they're not even replicable, um, which is a huge problem in the field, right? Yeah. Um, but then to the free will question, just because your answers to a question are predetermined, doesn't mean necessarily that you didn't answer those questions with free will, but I could end up talking about that for like two hours, so please don't engage me on that. I think I can <laughs> too. No, um, before we move on and back to pragmatism, um, would you care to comment on what you think the relationship is between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind in relation to maybe even pre um, preferences? Yeah, this is something that's discussed a lot in the book that we wrote together, The Pragmatist Guide to Life, where basically we, we discuss how you can change your internal model of yourself to influence those unconscious decisions later. So we have these periods of lucidity in which we can really think about what we want and what we should do. But then, of course, you know, in practice... We reach for the, the slice of chocolate cake when we're supposed to be losing weight or, you know, we, we do the lazy thing when we know we should have been working. Um, and that's because we have sort of a, a bad autopilot mm -hmm. setting, essentially. So what we discuss in the book is how to create essentially an autopilot that does what you want it to by changing your internal model. And your internal model is what your subconscious may turn to to decide what would I do in response to or what would you know, what would Malcolm do in response to the situation? And it's the model of Malcolm that the subconscious turns to. God, I'm so excited to unpack this because 
Um, something she really touched on here that I think is, is critical is we talk about your conscious mind and your subconscious mind, and you're like, is the subconscious mind sometimes making decisions that the conscious mind doesn't have access to? But there's a more important question here, which is how much of your life is lived on autopilot? Um, and, you know, I, I think of the most extreme example of autopilot, we're all familiar with road hypnosis. And um, are, uh, have you heard this term before? I haven't heard it, but I mean, it, based on what you just said, I think I guess it means probably that yeah. you get lost while you're, I mean, lost in thought while you're driving, but you're going well, to the right place. And yeah, then you're at your destination and you don't remember how you got there. You don't remember anything else because you are just like literally running on autopilot. But so much of our lives are lived that way. And, and it's very much what Simone says, you know, when she's like, oh, I know I shouldn't have this food, but whatever, I'm just going to have it because I want it. And I'm just, you're running on autopilot. Your logic is telling you, don't yeah. do this. Yeah, your, your conscious self, if they would have been there at that moment, would not have done that stupid thing, right? But, but your logic is a little whisper in the back of your mind. Your true conscious self is, is, is an ethereal entity, much more ethereal than we pretend it is. That sometimes pops into existence this, and then disappears. In, in brief moments of lucidity, when you're able to think, okay, what am I really trying to do with my life? What do I really want for my life? What, what sacrifices am I really willing to make in my life? And those brief moments of lucidity, you know, we would argue are the only moments in your life when you're really conscious. And where you're really you. But yeah, and, I mean, sadly, many people never even have them. Yeah, I, I almost get the impression that many people are never, never have even in the briefest moment of lucidity. They never have the moment where they're able to say, all of this autopilot stuff I've been doing, you know, am I just doing this because I was socialized and because it's my biology to do this? But then if you extract that um, a step further, one of the things that we really focus on is, well, if you only get these few brief moments of lucidity in your life, how can you leverage those moments of sort of, of, of true consciousness? You know, it's maybe like 10% of your day. How can you leverage that to build your autopilot to do what you would want it to do had you been lucid in those moments? To make the decisions that are responsible in those moments, in your interpersonal interactions, in your work, in your writing, and everything like that. So can we get into some of those questions? Because they're huge questions without giving, obviously, too much away. Sure. Which question shall we start with? Um, you, you pick. Why am I here? <laughs> well, okay. That's, <laughs> it's a big one. What we did, how we tried to approach this in the book um, was we went through um, every philosophical, religious, this technical, scientific, historical, geographical, whatever, um, possible reason why you could exist. We discussed it in the book. Um, and then we argued against it. Yeah, and, and we actually got, like, one of our first bad reviews was like, how could you possibly have a book that gives you all the reasons you can believe, and then you just prove why all of them are wrong, and we're like, wait a second, no. This is the point. What we're trying to do is we're trying to say that often when you accept something that you think is an easy reason to live. It has negative consequences. Um, and it's important to internalize and accept those negative consequences so you're not just taking the options you were socialized to take. Yeah, because most of the socialized things that anyone in, in a sort of developed country, I think, is raised to come away with is, you know, be happy or make the world a better place or, you know, do well by your family and accumulate so, wealth. So, for example, right, you know, you could say, well, what I want, you know, this is the easy hippie cop out answer. What I want is to make the world as happy a place as possible, sort of distribute aggregate happiness across humanity at as high a level as possible, both in this generation and in future generations. And so for this and other things, we no, not only just present on. it, but then present... No, but I, I was going to present how we sort of handle that. Yeah. So, the, so they believe, okay, let's let's do that. And then there's questions, right? So there's questions like if you're trying to maximize happiness amongst you know sort of conscious entities in the world, and you have defined conscious entities as humans, um, how do you handle something like a, a country? Like suppose you could sterilize everyone within an extremely poor country that wasn't going to have its government fixed up within the next few generations. Um, you would, of course, be increasing happiness. I mean, you might decrease happiness a little bit for this generation when they realize they're sterile, but you would increase happiness in future generations by not 
having their descendants live in this terrible government system with poor resources, knowing that other governments aren't really going to do anything about that. And you can come up with all these buts, ways to try to get out of this question. But the, the reality is, is that often these answers that we think are simple and politically correct lead to really horrific outcomes. So to put it more succinctly, we take anything that might be your reason for living and then we walk it through to a conclusion where it's fully optimized. And that helps you better understand if this is really something that you mm -hmm. believe or would want to follow through with or not. Or what the cost of optimizing it is. You know, another thing with full happiness is, okay, what if you could put everyone in a, 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 a pod? And you could push a button and everyone in the world would experience nothing but pure bliss for the rest of their life. Would you push that button? Um, and, and pure bliss in whatever way you define happiness, you know, even if it's fulfillment, it just hijacks their emotional centers. And a lot of people who say they want to maximize happiness, when they're given that option, they go, no. And it's OK, why did you say no? And they go, well, no, because they also should have freedom. And it's like, so freedom trumps happiness for you. And so how do you optimize freedom or what's the optimal mix and what's the logical framework behind that optimal mix? I mean, with that, I think a lot of these things, the lot of data that exists around these questions, I think they're just, it's my podcast, so I can say bullshit. <laughs> they're, because there are a lot of things where, you know, we can't do certain experiments for ethical reasons, and that's good. You know, I'm not opposing that. But I mean, when people say, for example, that one with the machine. Like the closest thing we have to something giving you that stimulation is your smartphone and everybody is staring at it. So when that's basically like a milder version of if you can have like something that just stimulates your brain and makes you feel some kind of happiness. You know, we can debate about whether it's uh, it's clearly not the happiness that positive psychology would, you know, um, encourage. But I think clearly people do these things when they get the option so so yeah i'm not sure i mean the the question that that i have after this is like for me this is intellectually interesting to see the consequences but are there any i don't know when i think back to why am i here optimizing happiness i would guess that most people who say that do not want to go out and sterilize people um, yeah, no, that's... because they only say it because they're socialized to say it, because it's the easy answer. It's the answer that nobody will challenge them for giving. When somebody says, what's the purpose of your life? The answer that no one's going to push against is I just want to make everyone else happier. But that's the problem. We're trying to get people to avoid the path of least resistance and actually think for themselves. And so these thought experiments exist to shock people into realizing that maybe a certain outcome is not what they would personally optimize for. And, and I love your smartphone you know, analogy there. And I would even say, okay, what if smartphones could give you that sort of deep fulfillment that positive psychology says that, you know, is striving for? Every time you looked at a smartphone, it would give you that. Would you want smartphones to be able to give people that? I mean, they just spend all day looking at smartphones and then does that mean that that type of deep happiness is not actually what you want to optimize for in the world? Because a bigger question than how do we optimize the world is what are we optimizing for? That would probably be some kind of mix of all kinds of things, right? I mean, it, I, I imagine it like kind of like a DJ device where you have like all these little levers and you push them and depending, depending on what you do, it, you know, the club explodes or it doesn't. Yeah, we, we see this happen with a lot of people who actually do think through it. What happens with them is they'll say, okay, I want to maximize these three, these three things. This one thing I want to maximize, maybe 50% of my life will go towards that, and then 25% to the other two or some other mix. Um, but that's what we often see, is that, you know, based on these heuristics, I think X matters, and then Y and Z also matter for these other heuristics, but, you know, not as much. So, so you want people to be very, not only to think for themselves, but to be very precise about their goals. Because, like, I could never articulate to what, you know, percentage I'm doing stuff, but oh, I would argue I am, right? So you certainly could, <laughs> yes. I mean, you could at least, so so when we talk about percentages, they don't need to be exact, but certain questions really do matter. So yeah, like for when, example, when does another thing trump the other thing? Yeah, so for example, uh, you say both my own happiness matters and the happiness of others matter. But what if you could 
give one dollar, right? And that dollar would give another person, you know, maybe fifty percent more happiness than it would give you. And and this is this this question like fundamentally matters when you're talking about giving money to charity and stuff like that. Yes. This is a real question that everyone should be grappling with every day. How much do you know? If you believe that happiness has value, every dollar I have, if I gave those dollars to another person in a country that is you know starving or impoverished, you know it could probably raise their happiness fivefold what it could raise my own happiness. So to that extent, how much do I value the happiness of another person who I don't know vis-a-vis my own happiness? And you don't need the exact percentages, but you at least need to know if $1 providing somebody else with five times the happiness it can provide you means that you should distribute the dollars to create those happiness points or whether you should keep them for yourself because your own happiness matters maybe 10 times the happiness of any other person, uh, especially somebody who you don't know. I mean, these have meaningful consequences in the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis. No, I agree. I agree. It does. I'm just trying to tie it back to, you know, I'm now I'm thinking like, like one thing is like for me, right? So, so we had some of these things we discussed at school. Um, some of that, some of these things I think about myself, right? And, but sometimes I also think, well, okay, so let's assume somebody has never really asked those questions. I'm thinking, like, how does that serve them in their daily life? Or should it even serve them? I mean, now it's everything is very philosophical, so we could even discuss whether it should serve them or someone else. But, you know, how do we make it, I don't know, practical? Because I see what you're saying, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with the link between those things. Can you help me tie it back a bit? So the question of how it serves them is an interesting question to us because we would argue that if you are not doing an activity or you're not optimizing to achieve a goal you know has value, then whatever you're doing doesn't serve you at all. Any life lived without knowing what you are trying to optimize for. So if we were to go to positive psychology, positive psychology says, let's try to optimize for X, but it tells you what X is. And it doesn't give a philosophical framework for why X should be that thing. And what we are saying is if you have chosen to optimize your life around X and it turns out that X is hollow, if it turns out that X has no value, then literally everything you have done in your entire life is pointless and hollow because you never thought about why you were doing it. You never thought about the end goal. And what we are attempting to do is both provide you know a very interesting take on positive psychology sort of in how we look at how humans think but also saying but you need to choose x and you need to know why you've chosen the x you've chosen and so we can say this just like one thing that inspired this was personal experience we uh when we worked in silicon valley and while malcolm was going to stanford business school we met some of the most successful people in the world uh you know the founders of what are now the, the highest valued companies things like that Um, And many of these people, although they had basically achieved the maximum of anything that anyone could possibly expect, both of their personal lives and their work lives, they didn't seem fulfilled. And then at the same time, we would meet, you know, you know, people who had a religious journey, you know, like missionaries, things like that, um, who may have had nothing and may have been doing the same thing for the past, you know, 15 years and no one would really consider them, you know, materially successful but they were extremely fulfilled and, and extremely successful by their own values and standards because they thought through that. But here's the irony of it, is that the people who achieve true fulfillment, you know, you, 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 in positive psychology often says, well, what you want is fulfillment, right? And we say, well, fulfillment may not have any value at all, but the people who actually feel fulfilled are the people who know what they want from life and are actually optimizing for that. And the people who optimize for fulfillment itself rarely experience the emotion. Yeah, it's it's sort of ironic. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's something that's just very, I mean, all of these things, they seem to be tangential. So you, you're focusing on something else and then, you know, happiness happens or meaning happens. But it's, it's, it's never, usually not, you go straight, shoot straight for happiness or straight for meaning or fulfillment. Um, how many things do you think we can optimize for, at least ethically. Ethically? I mean, I, I think there's an infinite number of things you can move into a mix, but of course, if you make your life too complicated, you're going to suck at everything. 
Um, I've, I've never seen someone really take on more than three and successfully pursue them as things they optimize with their existence. But but ethically, I mean, I don't think that there's a number cutoff. It's whatever you can justify with a philosophical framework. Yeah, and I mean, we view ethics as whatever is in line or not in line with your personal values, and that can be very relative. Wait, why do I need a philosophical framework? Why can't I just optimize for something? Because you can say, I let, look, I'm a human, right? Uh, I tell a person, you don't need a philosophical framework, just optimize for whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Well, the single feeling, the single emotion that people like most is fulfillment. And the second most is probably happiness. And the third most is probably pleasure. And um, I go to these people and I say, okay, optimize for whatever you want. And they're like, oh, yay, I get to do whatever I want. Okay, I'm optimizing for fulfillment, happiness, and pleasure. And I go, but why? And the problem is, is that if you are a, a science-minded person, you believe that you evolved those emotional sets because they caused your ancestors to breed more. You know, they have no real deeper value to them than that. If you are a religious-minded person, you know, uh, specifically within uh, at least the Christian tradition, you know, the devil uses happiness and pleasure and fulfillment all of the time to manipulate people within that tradition. Um, so there, there is no deeper philosophical framework, religious or science-based, that really says your sort of subjective emotional state has more value than the actions you take in the world. Well, I would add to that, too, actually. It's not just that people always choose happiness or fulfillment, but many times people look at who they are, because we love putting ourselves in, in buckets and in, on teams, and they'll say, okay, well, who am I? And then what, what would that person want? Like, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a nerd. And so I, I bet that my thing is I want to pursue as much knowledge as I can. And so that's what I'll optimize. But what they don't think through is the fact that they, what they've become in their lives is sort of a product of circumstances, how they were born, how they were raised, um, the media they were exposed to, the people around them. And they have no actual ownership. Mm -hmm. with that. Malcolm uses in the book the metaphor of, of you're basically like a sticky ball rolling down a hill picking up a bunch of stuff and that's sort of what people allow themselves to become and what we much more advocate is for cleaning off that ball looking at you know basic you know building that philosophical framework that we really do think matters and then sticking stuff to that ball that you think are in line with that philosophical framework and not just letting life happen to you. We want people to take ownership of their lives, their values, and what they want to optimize for. I, I love that so much, Samantha, is that you don't have to be who serendipity who's, has created. The serendipitous events in your life have created who you are, but that isn't necessarily a deeper version of you than a you you choose to be. If anything, it's the less deep version of you. But if you are gonna choose who you want to be, you need some framework for making that decision. And that framework shouldn't be vagities, like I wanna be nice and I wanna, because all that stuff is who you've been programmed to be by society. Right, so basically when you don't intentionally choose something, trying to be as logical as possible and thinking independently, that's just life circumstances deciding again for you. All right. Okay. I get you. I, I would just argue also for, for those listeners who are maybe a bit freaked out and thinking like, I, I wouldn't even know, begin to know what a philosophical framework is. I would argue that a lot of that you can actually get by just observing the results of what's happening around you. So for me, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm strong in philosophy at all. Like I don't, you know, I don't, I can't, I could, I would be hopelessly lost arguing with Malcolm, you know, like on that level, like no shot whatsoever. <laughs> But I just walk through the world. I, I, I work for a bank as well, right? So I walk through the world. I think about, well, what, what, what would I want or what is preferable or what's happening? And then I see, well, number one, did the thing that I want actually lead to the result I thought it would? Yes or no? And then, oh, um, did somebody else do something else? Well, how did that work out for them? Oh, okay. And I think based on that, you can actually, you can do something that is maybe less, you know, like, that is easier to do than maybe study all the philosophers like you did. But at the same time, by observing results, um, cause and effect, and just pivoting um, around that, you kind of start to deduce certain patterns. Um, and those line up actually quite nicely with, with, you know, what you see, like, oh, these are, these priorities seem to be, seem to be better for me or for what I'm trying to do, even if I'm not entirely sure what that is. Well, and we would point out that we're not, we're not 
we don't consider ourselves philosophers and we're not big fans of philosophy because frankly what we see is yet another tribal conglomerate of people who all like to put themselves on teams um, and then identify with things. Well, you know, I am an Epicurean. Well, I'm stoic and that means this about me, you know, and, and we see the same thing with personality assessments like, oh, I'm an MTBI oh, and I'm an, I'm an INTJ. Um, and that's not what it's about. And, you know, another approach you could take, well, we did with the book. And again, and just to put it another way, basically, let's say that things you could optimize and philosophical frameworks you could take to the world are, are food. You know, one thing's pizza, one thing's ice cream, one thing's croissant sandwiches with chicken. Um, what we do in the book is we take our readers to this giant buffet um, of all of these things they could potentially choose to eat or maybe mix and match on a plate. But, was that what but we, we have a, a sort of weird um, neurotic aunt accompanying them pointing to the various things saying, oh, well, you know what, that, you know, those croissants are going to go straight to your thighs or like, you know, did you know that there's a lot of salmonella in undercooked eggs, you know, things like that. And so we're just trying to point out all of the caveats or maybe the potential drawbacks that you might not have considered with those dishes before you throw them on your plate after you look at all of them and decide which you find to be most appetizing. And, and this buffet is not a list of philosophers or a list of philosophy. I mean, it's basic questions like, should you want to have as many kids as possible or just having kids have no moral value at all? Yeah, like, or does, in, does freedom have inherent value or does knowledge have inherent value or does the, the pursuit of perfection have inherent value? Things like that. Do you, do you find, and I'm really curious, it's not a rhetorical question, but do you find that the people who you feel are kind of not reflecting or not lucid, not really have any conscious moments that they're drawn to this book because it seems like the people would in, in, enjoy you know having their opinions basically beaten out of them are people who are already really open yeah that's that's the the challenge here is that those who read this book are already super into that and like halfway down the process and they're just curious and trying to figure it out because frankly there's no book that provides you with an assessment of various things you can optimize in your life that doesn't have an agenda you know usually it's an assessment of things but but, you know, obviously you're going to accept Jesus as your savior and follow the church. Or obviously you're going to try to, re you know, become uh, enlightened and, you know, kill the cycle of, of uh, reincarnation. Or obviously you're going to try to make the world a better place and save people and advance science. And we just want to give people that unbiased view. But, yeah, the problem is most, will say, unconscious people have absolutely no desire to think through this. Plus, it's super unpleasant to think through these things. I, I would say that the people who have, you know, when I reflect on the messages we get from people, I'd say they really fall into two categories. One is people going through major life transitions, like starting college or something like that, especially when they're younger and they're trying to establish who they are for the first time. And the second is people escaping extremely rigid framework systems. So, you know, you look at our top review on Amazon and it's somebody who escaped from a cult and this book was very meaningful for them because it provided them with a framework for thinking through questions that they had previously turned to other sources uh, and, and people who told them what to think to find answers to these questions. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people who are coming out of really rigid religious frameworks or even non-religious frameworks that, that are basically religions um, really find it a, a powerful resource for them to help them decide what they're trying to optimize in their lives. But a normal person, you know, if you're just talking about your average listener or something like that, they're just like, I don't care. You know, I made this decision a long time ago and I'm not going to come back to it because coming back to it is painful. Coming back to it takes time. Coming back to it takes effort. And things are working for me right now. Um, and, and unfortunately, I mean, one of the things we argue in the book is, is those are the type of people who participated in the Holocaust. They're like, yeah, this whole Nazi thing is working for me. I mean, I'm, I'm doing well in this society or in slavery, you know, because those were, you know, it's a slave holding South. That was morally normal within that time period. That's what all their friends did. You can't just assume because everybody says that something is moral in your society because you grew up believing it was moral and you were taught it in school and all of your friends think it's moral that it's actually moral. Um, these are things that are really worth thinking through if you don't, if you want to think yourself better than a slaveholder. Right, so so when are you, I mean, <laughs> it, what, what, 
I, I mean, I'm pushing, <laughs> I'm pushing, I'm pushing because I know you can take it. Okay. I'm not, I think I'm, I'm trying to, I'm really trying to, to come to terms with what you're, what you're asking people to do, because these are questions you could ponder every day of your life. You could give away your money, all of your money, right. And, and do all of these things yet. I, how do you arrive at something that's practical yet? from your point of view, you know, kind of good from a pragmatist point of view? Well, we think honestly, the process of asking those questions on a regular basis is kind of the first step. And you may change your conclusions, Malcolm and I have. We've, we've adjusted mm-hmm. uh, our objective functions, as we call them, the things we want to maximize based on experience, based on changing situations and what we've learned in life and how people have changed our minds. And that's fine. Our only argument here is take ownership of that process. Yeah. And also, I mean, for us, positive psychology is such a powerful part of this, because I think when you really master positive psychology, you realize how trivially, trivially easy happiness is to achieve. And that happiness doesn't come from the things that we think it comes from. It doesn't necessarily come from these great, meaningful things. I mean, it's little cognitive systems and neurological pathways that you can spam with meaningless nonsense um, that are, that are easy to, to generate these, these sense of fulfillment. Um, if that's what you're really optimizing for. And it's a bit like, I don't know when you first learned to masturbate or something like that, you know, it seems amazing for a week or something like that. And then you're like, okay, this happiness thing is too easy to get. What, what am I really in this for? Huh? Well, I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't compare positive psychology masturbation. I would say it takes a little bit longer to to get to the stage where you're bored. Like I, I'm not bored yet. And and the reason for me is that a lot of things that we talk about simply, you know, a lot of things are evident, right? So for example, yeah, gratitude is super evident. Everybody knows that it. it was just Thanksgiving. But how many how many times that has happened? You know, like I, I ask, you know, sometimes somebody does something nice for me at work and, you know, I'll maybe send them a little bit of chocolate in the mail and thank you letter that, uh, you know, a thank you note that was handwritten. And pretty much every single time I get back, oh, this has never happened to me in 27 years. So clearly, although everybody knows what gratitude is, um, it's not wi- widely practiced, you know, and and yeah. so, 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 yeah, but, you know, I, I think there, yeah, I mean, I think we could <laughs> go back and forth. Um I love that sound bit. I wish we could just put that out. <laughs> that was so funny. Um, so I, obviously we could talk about all of these things for a very long time, but is there anything you definitely want to get into the podcast that we haven't talked about yet? Well, I mean, our book, The Pragmatist Guide to Life, is on sale for only a dollar, under a dollar on Amazon. Um, we sell it as cheaply as we can, and we give all the money to charity. Um and, and obviously, you know, you're talking to us and you can tell that we, we have sort of a mission with this, which is just to, you know, get people to think through why they're doing things. But also a lot of the book, more than half the book is dedicated to positive psychology, but looking at positive psychology through a different lens, like what if you weren't trying to optimize for happiness? How could you change these systems? How could you control these systems? How could you choose who you wanted to be and how sort of your deep internal framework uh, reacts to different situations you're put into. So how can you create a version of you that feels happiness when you do the things you want to be doing? And how can you create a version of you that outputs, you know, sort of disgust or anger when you want that iteration of you? Because most people, when they're looking at sort of the emotions, they output, it's just sort of, as Simone talked about before, that sticky ball that rolled down the road. It's just sort of the serendipities of your life create the way you emotionally react to various stimuli or sort of life situations. Um, And what we would like people to do is practice taking more control over who this sort of lower order iteration of their self is and write it so it's who they really want to be. Right. And I would say that people who are, you know, there are, a lot, there are a lot of people listening who are somehow, you know, spreading positive psychology themselves or some variation of that, people who want to help other people. And sometimes um, some of them tell me, well, they are stuck as well. So I, I just want to point out that even if you don't necessarily agree or you think like, oh, that doesn't sound like fun being beaten up. Like, I think reading <laughs> something like this, even if you disagree with every single word, 
will be probably will do a lot to stimulate your thinking and to deepen your knowledge of of what you know what positive psychology but also like just life itself is and what it is to you and what it means to you so yeah all right so where can people find you well, the best thing to do is to search for The Pragmatist Guide to Life on Amazon. You can also find our website at pragmatist.guide where you can request things like a free audiobook, things like that. And of course, contact us, Malcolm at pragmatist.guide or Simone at pragmatist.guide. We'd be happy to hear from you and have conversations. And if you feel lost or want to talk through this with someone, it's kind of our favorite hobby on the side. It's, it's what keeps us sane from those seven-day work weeks. So... And feel free to reach out. And we are extremely dedicated to not uh, pushing you down a specific path. Um, and there, there's not a lot of resources like that where there's people you can reach out to who aren't going to tell you this is the correct answer. No, our agenda is clear. We just want you to think. Uh, we don't care what conclusion you come to. We just want you to show your work. And we're super happy to get you through that. Cool. Very cool. Okay. Thanks very much. It was, uh, that was, that was, that was something else. That was, that was fun. <laughs> We had such a blast chatting with you. And it's such an honor, too. I mean, after listening to your podcasts and really enjoying your insights and especially your approach to positive psychology, what drew us to you is the fact that you really, you know, you aren't just taking the assumptions that are so pervasive in that industry for granted. And you're really looking at it from a, what we would consider and call a pragmatic approach. And we yes. just enjoy Wait, I, I qualify as this. I'm surprised. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You may not realize it, but you often say stuff that is quite heretical within mainstream positive psychology. You're like, well, everyone else thinks this, but really, if you look at the evidence and you, you put it together with, without the biases, you know, it actually says this. There's actually these different types of happiness. Or here's a way that people might not have thought about this particular emotion before. Um, and uh, I, we really uh, admire that. Wow. Well, thank you so, so much. Alrighty, I hope that shook you up in all the right places. Now let's go and read some reviews. I'm pretty behind on those, so bear with me if you've written one and haven't heard it yet. Um, the first one is from Obzumzum from the US. This is, it is from back in June, so... Yeah, it says, I'm now 40 episodes deep into Kristen's podcast about positive psychology. Each episode comes packed with great information and insight. I've come away many times with ideas in my mind on how I can make my day a little bit better through positive psychology behaviors. She offers a mix of her own insights and research combined with industry expert interviews. Podcast is well balanced and science based. Kristen is in equal parts intelligent, thoughtful, and goofy. If you are a positive psychology, sorry, if you are a psychology nut or just interested in learning more, I highly recommend this podcast. Thank you very much, Obzumzum. I got very excited when I read this the first time. I thought you called me a nut, um, uh, a good nut, I guess. Uh, but no, you said other people if they're psychology nuts. Um, I'm happy to be called Goofy. Goofy was actually my favorite um, in the Mickey Mouse universe. So yeah, score. And you know, good on you. Um, I think if you have the attention span to go into 40 episodes of this or any other podcast for that matter, um, I would imagine that that translates really well into doing other things, you know, that you can kind of harness that focus for other things and that's what I wish for you Ob Sam Sam. Then we got a review from China from Wushling. I may have butchered this. I do not know. It just says exceedingly good and I am exceedingly grateful. Thank you very much um, to you Wushling and everybody else who's listening in from places around the world um, where you know maybe it's not taken for granted to be listening to podcasts or podcasts in a in a language that's not your first language. So thank you to you, Wushling, and everybody else who's listening to this um, using their second or even third language. Then there's Monkia or Monkaya, I'm not entirely sure, from Australia. She said, I'm only two episodes in, starting from the beginning, but I'm finding this to be practical and well-informed show. I love how open you were on the feedback after the first episode. I can't wait to get back in my car and keep listening. Uh, for those of you who didn't uh, check out the beginning, Monk 
Kaya or Monkia is referring to the first, you know, at the beginning, pretty much only my mom was listening. And she said, she said a couple of, you know, astute things, uh, which I repeated. So yeah, thanks very much, Monkaya. I, I am happy. Uh, many, many happy drives through that beautiful, what I imagine to be beautiful country of yours. Then here's one from someone called P.S. Raya uh, from the U.S. And it says, Trumpy, okay, <laughs> is smart, funny, and down-to-earth. Great interviews with diverse speakers. Entertaining, educational, and uplifting. The Positive Psychology Podcast is part of my weekly enrichment program. Thanks very much, P.S. Raya. Um, if you're a listener of this show, you are very, very welcome to use my first name, which is Kristen. So, hey, thanks very much for leaving a review. And because I'm so behind, I'll do one more uh, again from Australia. Shout out to Australia. I mean, you folks are just great in reviewing. Um, you and the U.S. kind of make everybody else look bad. So if you're from one of the other countries, take an example from these peeps from Australia. Thank you, Christmas. Christmas, jeez. <laughs> Christmas is over. Okay, let's try again. From Yazimataz, um, thank you, Kristen, for this podcast. I'm sure you're used to hearing it. You have helped me through a breakup and earned certain time in my life. Your quirky style humor and unjudgmental tone make me happy and excited to get into the car and drive to work, as I know I'll be listening to your podcast on the way. Oh, man, Yazimataz, um, that breakup is you know, a couple of months back in the past. By now, I hope you feel much better than you did when you wrote this review. And I'm happy that I can sweeten your drive and and help you and you and hopefully some others as well get through rough times. And uh, when I hear those stories, I always kind of hope that all of you eventually, when you're ready for it, take the strength that you gained and perhaps help other people going through similar things in the way that they need, right? So yeah, that's my message to you. Thanks very much for the reviews. We'll come to the others uh, in future episodes. And that is it. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help us out by sharing it with your network and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. We would love to hear from you at kristen at strengthphoenix.com. For show notes and more, head over to www.strengthsphoenix.com. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt. <laughs> <laughs>